I'm Alex Marlowe, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. At the top of the show, we get into the news of the day. Needless to say, we start with Ron DeSantis, who was telling students now to take the mask off, which is a little more aggressive than simply just saying, hey, uh, teach his own man, wear your mask or don't wear your mask, man. He's flat out saying, this is anti-science, don't wear them. I dig it, and we play the clip, and I think you'll dig it too. A congressman named Van Taylor, Republican establishment guy who Breitbart exposed as uh, paying off a woman known as the ISIS bride after having an affair with her and a nasty affair at that, apparently, if the text messages are to be believed, and he has not denied it. Uh, he is dropping out of his congressional race after he failed to win enough votes to avoid a runoff in his first Texas congressional seat. And I explain why this is swamp culture in the fullest and is a truly true disgrace to the entire country. I think you'll enjoy hearing the details, even though you might cringe a number of times. And then we get into a lot of guests today. We have the Breitbart News all-star panel where we speak to not one, not two, not three, but five total Breitbart guests throughout the show. So you get a taste of just what sort of brain power and manpower and woman power. Uh, Jerome Hudson, David Ng, Francis Martel, Emma Joe Morris, Peter Schweitzer, all people who make my job not just easier, but highly more pleasurable and informative every day uh, working with these wonderful journalists. And we want to show them off to showcase what Andrew Breitbart built. And he was more than just an individual. He also built the media outlet, which you all are a part of by listening to the show and sharing the content of the show and and I wanted to take the chance in honor of Andrew 10 years since his passing to introduce you to more of the people that make my newsroom so excellent. And I think you're going to get a huge kick out of this. Also, there's so many others that I couldn't include. And this is why we do recommend you get the full show sometimes on demand in the SXM app or live every morning, Sirius XM 125, the Patriot channel at 6 a.m. Because you do miss out on some of the great interviews I had today with Oliver Lane, who runs our London Bureau, Dr. Tom Williams, who runs our Rome Bureau. It's just such a such great journalists and people who really care about Western civilization and uh, America so much. And they do such a great job. And uh, it is a honor and a privilege to work with them every day. And I'm glad that in today's show, you'll get to meet so many of them. All right. But first, a word from our sponsors. congressman named van taylor who's an establishment republican from texas he had an affair with a isis bride a woman named uh, tanya joya who is known as the isis bride and we published text messages that they exchange with one another and they're incredibly lewd to the point where i cannot read them on the air even if they are even if I warn you, if you kids in the car turn off the radio, like, that's not enough. That's how bad they are. Uh, it is some that you might not want to read. They're repulsive. They're nasty. They're um, freakish, almost. And, you know, I don't know if the, the stuff that occurred in the text literally happened, but it, it's sick stuff. It's perverted. So these came out a few days ago, and he is married and has children. And he likes to post pictures of you know, taking his children to work online because he's a really good guy. He's really, really relatable. And we put the stuff out there. And he also bizarrely tried to pay off the ISIS bride to not talk about the affair and the perversion, but only offered $5,000, which 
So I would like to think if you're someone in public life and you have a recovering jihadi and you're having an affair with them and you're doing a lot of kinky stuff, that probably more than 5,000. You know, I think the lesson is you don't have affairs, number one, if you're in public life. Well, you really shouldn't have affairs even if you're in private life. It's incredibly sinful. But let's say, so you don't have affairs. That's number one. Number two, if you do have affairs, uh, uh, make sure it's the you can afford to pay off the person you're having an affair with. And I don't think he could because he only offered her five grand. I'm just saying, I mean, uh, the, the, you can tell I'm a little tongue-in-cheek here. You know, I'm, I'm not a pro at having affairs. Kind of had the same lady, same old lady for the last half of my life. Uh, we crossed over here, Mrs. Octon Marlowe and I. We've been together for more than half our lives, even though we're in our mid-30s, which is very cool. Proud of that. And I encourage everyone to try to inspire, try to uh, to be, to aspire to that. I do think it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have monogamy, I think, in general. I think it's good for people. But if that's not for you, I would highly recommend that your affairs not occur with people who are recovering jihadis. They might be crazy. Just a thought. And that uh, you can afford to uh, keep them quiet. But I'll tell you the thing that strikes me the most about this story. So he runs for Congress again. He's in a primary. And he nearly gets to 50% because the story stays under wraps because I think the nastiness of it also only came out a couple of days before the election. So it didn't, I think, permeate the electorate to the extent it would have had we gotten wind of some of these stories, some of these facts ahead of time. But I think it got into the bloodstream a little bit. And so he narrowly didn't make it to a runoff. And then he dropped out. I'm sorry, he, he, he narrowly didn't eliminate the runoff. So he has to be in a runoff with another Republican. And that's when he drops out. And that, to me, is one of the swampiest things of all time. So if he'd gotten a 50% in his primary, he would just deal with it and then go back to Congress. And then we'd have a perv in the Congress or a apparent perv. I'll say that for legal purposes. Not to say we don't have other pervs, but this was particularly bad when you read the text. If you do, brightbird.com right now. But I found that to be unbelievable that he waited through the primary. And then when he had to have a runoff, then he said, okay, now I'm going to drop it. I'm not going to work on my personal life until I get through this election here. And let's see if I can avoid a runoff. Does it get swampier than that? Do you have a swampier? Is there anything swampier on earth? The affair with the jihadi, recovering jihadi, where you do a lot of perverted stuff outside of your marriage, even though you have kids, and then offer to pay off the jihadi to stay silent, but you can't afford to pay her enough to actually keep her silent. That would have been fine so long as you win your primary in a blowout. But if you win your primary in a narrow way and then you have to do runoff, no, then you're out. Then you got to work on your personal life. Uh, D.C. does not necessarily attract world's bestest peoples. The people who are in power in the United States are, uh, I would say, not necessarily those of the highest character. John Nolte pointed out something to me yesterday night late, and John is a, a he is a morning person. So John, my real life godfather, senior writer for Mr. Breitbart, he tends to knock out his work early in the day and punch out and work around his house and um, go do watch movies, hang out with family, hang out with dogs, et cetera. That's his plan. And then he comes back on early and we check in. That's his, that's his, uh, the way he does his work schedule. But he came on late last night because it just dawned on him that Anthony Fauci's on the bench. 
And I was thinking, yeah, you're right. I haven't seen him in forever. I don't watch a lot of cable news, so I don't miss Fauci as much as some people who are regular MSNBC and CNN viewers. But Nolte keeps an eye on it closely for us at Breitbart. He noted Fauci didn't get a name check in the State of the Union, and he's not gotten a lot of prominence in a long time. At the same time, Joey the Biden and other Democrats are acting as though the coronavirus is dead, even though the coronavirus rates are uh, virtually the same as they've been for the last year, if not arguably a little higher with the death toll of March the 1st, 2022, significantly higher than March the 1st, 2021. Yet we're acting like the coronavirus is uh, going to go away or it is going away which is just not true. It's just not happening. It's just the numbers are not there. Um, I spoke to one of the several doctors who I was in touch with on a regular basis throughout the pandemic, who I think is part of the reason why I um, have given you guys a solid information, whether you like to hear it or not, who said to me that he certainly anticipates there'll be another wave that comes through, even though Trump supporting guy, someone who deep medical knowledge, trained in one of the best medical schools in the country, and is, does not like any of the mandates, thinks they're all bad, but does think that, you know, we're not done. Like, we're not done. It's the probably future variants are likely to be uh, to uh, be tougher to vaccinate against, and but also will be less deadly. That's all, all the stuff that he thinks is the high likelihood, though, of course, it could be the opposite. It could be much more deadly, but also much more susceptible to getting, you know, us being able to vaccinate it away. But he suggests that we're not done at all. Like we could have, maybe there'll be a lull that comes up now, even though I think that's sort of overblown. But we're still going to, the coronavirus is here and it could be here on an annual basis. Perhaps we're seeing it on maybe an eight month cycle. We don't know the cycle yet. We don't know. But it's part of our life. Um, But we're just acting all of a sudden like it's going away. Well, so people in the chamber yesterday did not have to, or two days ago at the State of the Union, did not have to wear masks for whatever reason. They were so awkwardly socially distanced. Um, someone was circulating a meme online, and I'm reluctant sometimes to describe memes. Memes are these sort of viral internet videos. A picture is worth a thousand words times, you know, several pictures in a row of socially distanced Democrats from Maxine Waters, who, you know, looks like she's bored out of her mind, socially distanced from another Democrat who literally has purple hair. Does anyone know who the purple hair Democrat is? I should have looked this up before I came on, who did not look like she was enjoying it. Debbie Dingle looks like she's on drugs. Uh, Ed Markey had a mask. It was the only mask in the room. Uh, Mark Warner from Virginia was asleep. And these are all in the same shot. You're getting all these in the same shot. Pramila Jayapal not paying attention. It's just, just these people did not, even the Democrats, just uh, could not get into Big Joey's speech. But I do like that Ed Markey did have a mask on, even though no one else has it. So does he have the virus? Because Big Joey threw the mask on yesterday. Biden was walking around with his mask on after announcing the mask is off. It is fun now. Now the CDC says you don't have to wear them. You can go wherever you go if anyone asks you to wear the mask. You should say, so you're going to the CDC, huh? And no CDC for you. Ron DeSantis is on it, as usual. This is a clip that is somewhat surreal. Can we play cut two, please? Go. You do not have to wear those masks. I mean, please take them off. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything, and we got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, fine, but this is a, this is ridiculous. Uh, DeSantis gets right up in some students' faces when he was at an event uh, at the University of South Florida, and he said, you don't need to wear the mask. It's ridiculous. 
please take it off. Honestly, it's not doing anything. Again, as I've tried to report to you throughout the course of the pandemic, DeSantis is following the science. And part of the reason why Florida has done so well is not because DeSantis is some sort of pure Trumpian bomb thrower, the guy's uh, Yale educated. He was on top of the science of it about as well as anyone that I spoke to during the pandemic who is not a scientist. He was totally at the cutting edge of it. I think I briefly touched on those Charlie Herp, but uh, we started to send Master Marlowe to preschool finally. He's pretty smart. I, I can't necessarily provide enough education for him at home at this moment, given the busy schedules that we got going with the three little kids and the two working adults to do some sort of a real curriculum for him. And we found a great school in the area that's looking really good uh, for us. And we wanted to send him to it, but we were very slow to do it because they got the stupid masks. And then finally, we just started sending him a week or two ago. And we did it with, even though the school has a mask mandate, we, we don't even send him with a mask. So they are, uh, he's asked to wear them, but he doesn't have one. And we don't let him bring one. And I still w- am annoyed, highly annoyed that the teachers wear them. But we've just been sending him with no mask and, and no one's really said anything. Maybe once or twice. But we just say, just just go ahead. And it's absurd to look at the consistency of the mask when I go to pick them up or drop them off. Is that they're every which way. I mean, some are on the chin, some are on the face, some are on the eyes, and some are in the backpack. Just pure science. What could be more scientific than that? Though I am happy to say that we got the good news yesterday, that the masks are coming off, that no one will be wearing the masks, but only as of March 11th. If you want to talk about the COVID theater, uh, we know they're not doing anything, and we know we've all kind of agreed that we need to start taking them off. But we're going to have another week and a half of pretending like we care, pretending like we give a crap about these masks. I, I, you can tell I can't, I, I can't even get through it without laughing. It's so ridiculous. Uh, but it's not ridic- ridiculous for the people whose growth is getting stunted. And it's not ridiculous for the generation of children now who will grow up and who will learn what we did to them during this pandemic and to know that it was purely based on political scientist Tony Fauci and uh, bumbling idiot Joe the Biden. And that's why we're here. And once they realize it was those individuals, the friendly fascists, friendly uh, friendly Collins, Francis Collins, once people realize that, I do think that it's going to turn off a lot of people to government which I think is good, but it will also turn off a lot of people to uh, America as being this incredible place of freedom because we restricted freedom of our most vulnerable people, the people who do nothing about it, children. We restricted freedoms and we're still doing it to the servant class, the teachers and the waiters, the people who are, are coming to your home to do work. These people all think that they're supposed to be wearing masks. We have a second-class citizenry that we've developed where we cover people's faces. People like me, I haven't worn a mask in forever. I mean, I don't even know where my mask is, unless I'm on an airplane. I can get through the day without it. But teachers can't. Wait- waitresses can't. What's that about? What a sick society would do that. And I think a lot of people are going to grow up and realize that, and they're going to be upset by it. And then others, which is even more scary, will just be cowed by it. They will grow up, and they will think, Okay, this is uh, just, you know, this is how it is. Whatever, we wear the mask, you know. Better safe than sorry, dudes. How's that going to go? Even worse.
right, so we kick off our all-star panel with Jerome Hudson, who is our entertainment editor, and David Ng, who is our top entertainment reporter, a transplant from the mainstream media, and they break down exactly the state of whether or not the culture is still upstream from politics. Is that the case anymore? We get into it right now. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the show. I want to start with talking about Andrew Breitbart and his legacy. He passed away 10 years ago on March the 1st, which was two days ago as we're recording this. And it is, I think it's important to note the type of people who he drew to his company because we are so effortlessly diverse. And I think people are so intellectually curious, hardworking, and it's just a really cool group of people. And I think uh, it's something I'm very proud of personally as being editor of the site. But uh, Jerome, talk to me about your journey to, um, uh, you know, through the think tank world and then eventually to being the entertainment editor of Breitbart. It's a pretty interesting story. Yeah. So my mentors, mentors, Peter Schweitzer. And so I'm a college student in 2008. I'm sort of seeing the 20, uh, the 2008 political election through the prism at that point in time of like a 20 year old, you know, default liberal. And I walk into my mentor's office uh, who runs our social media platform at Breitbart today. And I walk into his office and I, and through a relationship with him, I have this political conversion. And then I meet uh, Peter Schweitzer, who I believe at the time, although I didn't know it was Andrew's uh, big piece editor, basically is his, his first national security editor. Um, fast forward a few years, I've spoken at Tea Party rallies, and I, it, that was the first time that I realized, you know, I, I didn't know it at the time why or how long Andrew had sort of been saying that, you know, we, we should walk toward the fire. But that was completely my experience. I saw him on a stage, and it was a moth to a flame. And so, um, I started working for Peter Schweitzer uh, beginning of 2012. Shortly thereafter, I was writing for Breitbart News. We had something called The Conversation. I think only loyalists would really remember that. Um, and I'm just I'm just working and the yeah, Jerome, that was one of our initiatives that was fun for like five minutes and it was like really fun for five <laughs> minutes and then it became very not fun and became very it's like this sort is, of this annoying. is like the corner at National Review but ten times right. better um, right for, uh, until, until people but, stopped reading it yeah right but you know so yeah I, I'm basically blogging for the site and I'm working at Peter Schweitzer's think tank, Government Accountability Institute, which is like a doctorate degree in corruption. And so these worlds collided for me. And Andrew's voice, the way that he articulated how we must destroy a cultural and a political paradigm that has brought so much misery to so many Americans, um, just I, I was a moth to the flame. And the entertainment coverage was so much fun much more fun than a lot of the, the, the I mean, it, the, the political stuff was fun. But to see some of the most smug people on the planet, the rich and famous, using their platforms, and to get a guy like Barack Obama elected, and I, and I was watching them try to do it again, yeah. um, I fell into the entertainment coverage, and I guess the rest is history. 
Jerome works closely with David Ng, who is a reporter for us on entertainment and media at Breitbart. And David is one of those people I mentioned earlier who's a mainstream media transplant. We have very few people going the other direction, which is something I'm also proud of at Breitbart. But we do sometimes pull in talented people who do get fed up with the establishment press. And David previously was at my hometown paper, the Los Angeles Times, which has descended from a left-wing paper that was probably better for bird cages and fish and chips uh wrapping up you know the 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 greasy fried food uh to now just total madness it's just total insanity over there every day david i think you got out at the right time but but give me your journey to to breitbart and uh, i've never necessarily asked you about andrew himself and if you remember andrew and what you thought of him if you did yeah so you know i came to breitbart uh, through a very, very different route than Jerome. As you said, I came from the mainstream media, and that's what I thought my career would be. You know, um, you know, coming up through journalism school, I took a very traditional route. Um, I went to journalism school at NYU, and I graduated, and I worked my way up, and I eventually landed at the LA Times. And I thought I would be writing about movies and TV shows and music my whole life. Um, but as you said, you know, the newspaper, you know, took a really hard turn to the left, um, and what I saw there was, was, was very disturbing um, in terms of the kind of coverage they were doing, the kind of things that higher up editors were doing. Um, I found it very disturbing and, and not at all tolerable. Um, and, you know, I met you, you know, Alex, you know, because I, I wrote a story about Breitbart um, uh, for the newspaper. And, um, and that's how, that's how we, we first connected. Um, and from there, it was just kind of um, a, a wild journey because that was uh, just after Donald Trump was elected. And, and you know, the, the news media just kind of went insane. And their, their primary objective, their mission in life became to destroy Donald Trump. And that wasn't something that I thought was the mission that should be the mission of any news organization. Um, and so um, and eventually I landed uh, at Breitbart. Um, you know, Andrew Breitbart was a figure in Los Angeles who, 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 was, who was very, very prominent. Um, and it's interesting how the news media, how its relationship with Andrew changed, because he was someone who was very welcome, actually, on the left. Um, yeah, I remember he spoke at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival. Um, he was very friendly with a lot of our reporters at the L.A. Times. Um, but now that, you know, the news media has, has completely changed and, and, you know, the name Breitbart is, is like a curse word almost. Um, it says very little about us, but it says a lot about them. So, yeah, I think um, this is, this is very, very interesting. And I want to expand on this because there's two, there's a couple of points in this is one that what I've experienced personally, which is David, you and I would talk sometimes when you were covering the media beat for the LA times. And I felt like we would have really interesting conversations and I'd say some interesting stuff and then maybe, you know, you could get a half a sentence into the article uh, and you'd share, have to share the byline with four other people. Uh, that couldn't be very satisfying for you. But I, I do recall when Andrew was alive, there were L.A. Times reporters, some of whom I thought were, were pretty good, some of whom I thought were pretty terrible. Um, but they would be in and out of the Breitbart offices. Like we, we, they would come by and they would actually take an interest in what we're doing. And though they would never write about us, I would say entirely accurately, there is at least some effort put forward to convey that we're real people, actual human beings. Um, and it, that just really seemed to change. And you kind of witnessed it and then said, okay, I'm out. Well, was there a moment where you decided, okay, this is, this is too much? Yeah, it was kind of, um, I don't know if there was a flashpoint, but there was, there was definitely um, a kind of, because I had written about Breitbart, um, and because I, I felt that the story that I had written about Breitbart was fair and honest and even-handed, um, that um, there were a lot of people within the newspaper who didn't like that. 
and there was kind of um, um, like a fatwa against me uh, internally. And, and we've, we've spoken about this. Um, you know, people I had been friends with would no longer talk to me. Um, my own editors were, were, were became hostile to me, uh, all because of this one article, which, you know, <laughs> wasn't wasn't terribly, you know, controversial. Um, it was just kind of it was, it was almost basic in a way. But that was enough to, to, to push them. And that, and then they pushed me. And, you know, I just I, you know, it, was, it became intolerable. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting when, when talking about Andrew Breitbart, you know, he was he was someone who, you know, who loomed large um, in, in Los Angeles. And he was someone who, you know, like, you know, like we said, was someone that the left actually treated with with curiosity and some respect. Um, and that has completely changed. And it's kind of bizarre and disappointing and disturbing um how that's happened um yeah and, the, um, the the doubling down by the media that andrew was calling them out and you, you'll notice this in your personal life because people do this in their in our personal lives where when they get something wrong the impulse isn't to stop and think oh shoot i'm wrong the impulse is to get defensive and yeah. uh, you know almost everyone does this but it just seems like we've gone through this for now years where the news business is really hurting itself, not just in terms of credibility, but in terms of uh, audience and money, because they're, they're the mistakes, for example, that they don't take huge swaths of population seriously. They demonize them. Um, all of that is just, I think, wildly backfired. And they just seem to never learn those lessons at all that is the Andrew Breitbart yeah. a lot of valid points and he could have been it could have been an interesting you could have we all could have grown the pie. But that obviously wasn't the objective from the establishment press. Yeah, no, if I could just say one, one thing personally Please. for me about Andrew was that, um, you know, it's something that James O'Keefe said yesterday, that he was a cultural figure, not political. Yeah. And that that's something that uh, that is very close to me because, you know, I wanted to be an entertainment reporter. I wanted to write about movies and, you know, music and TV shows. And I feel that today now that the, the conservative media takes culture more seriously than the left does. Um, and it wasn't always that it was it was the reverse for many years um, in the 80s and 90s. But I feel that the, the right and, and, and the right of center media takes culture seriously because they realize that culture is connected to everything, that it influences everything, whereas the left tends to kind of ghettoize it um, as kind of soft news. Um, it's where it's where like it's where high power editors are put out to pasture before they retire, basically. But uh um, yeah, so I feel like the right does take culture seriously. They understand how it works and how it's connected to everything else, politics, business, and everything uh, kind of intersects in, in, in this area we call culture, quote-unquote. Yeah, and uh, Jerome, this is a, a good time to pivot back to, to you because you are do kind of run our culture reporting by, via our entertainment uh, section there as our, our editor. What do you make of the state of the culture in terms of the way it is having an impact um, with Andrew's famous statement that culture is uh, upstream of politics or politics is downstream of culture? I feel like when he said that, it was so 100% unassailably true. And now I feel like maybe it's not as true and not this is far from a knock on Andrew. It's actually because we identified it and we realized that we were all kind of getting hoodwinked. We were all kind of, um, I, I think, I think we were letting people who had no business controlling so much of our society control so much of our society. And I, I think that's something that we've pushed back on it pretty effectively as um, Hollywood's gotten sort of more uh, stuck up and more 
more conservative, really, with, with their their businesses, uh, the way they run their business. And I think this has provided a pretty big opportunity for folks like us to step in and make fun of them a lot and to marginalize some of their cultural impact. But uh, evaluate this statement. No, I think what we've been able to do at the entertainment page, probably for the better part of a decade, is quite extraordinary. Um, I think we have exposed the celebrity class, the entertainment media, uh, and the entire apparatus of Hollywood writ large so much to the point that, like, if you read the comments section on our Facebook or on our articles, um, it's all a, a big joke. I mean, our, our, yeah. our readership is the smartest and most engaged readership on the planet. I mean, they absolutely understand that who these people are, uh, the, the, the Lena Dunham's, the Jennifer Lawrence's, the Lynn manuel Miranda's and Lady Gaga's of the world, despite having massive influence in culture in these uh, ridiculously large platforms, uh, from which they actually spew hate on the very people who make them rich and famous. Yeah. Our readers, and I mean, tens of millions of people actually get the joke now. Um, and it, it is, it, there was an inflection point, Alex, a couple weeks after the 2016 election, the New York Times actually proved everything that I just said right under the headline, How Conservative Sites Turn Celebrity Despair on Its Head. And what's funny about that headline is Breitbart News is actually the only conservative news site that is mentioned in the article. Um, I have it framed here in my condo um, because it is an absolute vindication of the power of Breitbart News and particularly how uh, the entertainment page, again, like I said, for the better part of a decade, has weaponized these sappy Instagram sermons. Um, from these smug elites who just just three days ago, I think I think David wrote the article of how Samuel Jackson was basically calling Hollywood racist because in order for black people to get an Oscar, they have to do stupid stuff on TV. Um, but they're the, they're the sexists. They're the bigots. They're the anti-gay. I mean, just look up anything about Ellen DeGeneres's decades in Hollywood. These people are actually guilty of the same sins that they have launched attacks on the, the, the millions of hardworking Americans in this country. And I'm just so proud that it doesn't feel like work. It never has felt like work um, to actually expose these people and to, to actually shift that, that cultural paradigm. I, I, think, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, and, and, and we've seen it now. We've had a couple elections in which we've neutralized very powerful voices. Um, they, they'll still be able to raise the money. Um, they'll, they'll still be able to bundle millions of dollars. Um, but, but, but we are now the biggest cannon on the battlefield, and they know it. And again, this November 2016 New York Times piece is one of those pieces, you know, that we sort of we look back on or like Barack Obama after the election praising us to a room full of leftist activists who couldn't stop crying because of what Breitbart sure. uh, in large part was able to do to expose the left. Yeah, David, I want to throw that same question to you is the because you're someone who's tracked it for a long time from different angles is the 
it feels as though that Hollywood uh, having backdoored themselves into a, a real trap here that they are uh, they could never live up to their own standards and then now they're being asked to by some people because the right is so marginalized and they have no choice to sort of eat themselves alive Samuel L. Jackson this example comes to mind um, or pointing out that, hey, this industry, they're supposed to be the champions of woke. They're they're not that woke. I mean, it's a think about the Oscar so white controversy. A look at the Me Too stuff, which is all uh, Hollywood based. Um, it's the they're, they're eating themselves alive. I don't think the country is necessarily better off for it. But it, either way, regardless of my take on that, it just seems to be happening. Yeah, one of the things I'm proudest of uh, during my time here is, is the way we cover Hollywood in China. And how you know we've really you know shown a light on on that that horrible horrible partnership between the entertainment industry and the Communist Party in, in China, and I think now um, it's it's you know everyone's talking about it, and and it's something that Hollywood can't avoid, and I think that 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 says a lot about you know Hollywood that lectures to average Americans, but on the other hand does business with a murderous regime, so that's something that the mainstream news media would you know, was very reluctant to cover for many years. Um, um, but, and we kind of forced them to do it. Um, and I think that's something that I'm very proud of. So what do you guys think of how Hollywood, this is so absurd. And Dave, we'll start with you on this. Uh, and I only got a few minutes left, but I think it's really important to hit this, that Hollywood is sanctioning Russia over Ukraine. Um, I think the new Batman movie, um, so Disney, Sony, they're all not going to release stuff in Russia or to Russia, but it's, they don't care about China. China is, has a genocide going on as we speak, and they've completely kowtowed to China every step of the way. And it starts, of course, with Joe Biden. That's the history of it. Biden brokered all the deals. Uh, they got us to where we are. We have Warner Brothers canceling, canceling the Batman release in Russia. It's a, I, I don't know in a vacuum if I disagree, but it's just so clearly virtue signaling given how they treat China, David. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, Warner Brothers canceled the Batman in Russia, but it's opening in China. So, um, you know, it's just window dressing. It's just good PR for them. Um, it's what they're expected to do. And, you know, they know they'll get good press for it. Um, and they know they won't be called out for, for partnering with China because there's a compliant entertainment media that basically does its bidding because it's so thirsty for scoops that they'll do anything the studios ask them to. Yeah. Um, and that's how it works, unfortunately. But yeah, you know, you know it's, Luckily, I think, you know, luckily for us, you know, China is cutting off its market to to Hollywood. And I think that's a net net uh, positive for America because it's going to basically cut off um, Hollywood's addiction to Chinese money. And I think that could be a good thing. Um, the, the and I'm going to pull a classic Steve Bannon here, and I definitely want to have, see a story at Breitbart where I'm giving an assignment on the air. Steve used to do. I definitely want to see. I want a compiled list of all of the movies that will not be released or all the studios won't be releasing in Russia, but will still release in China. Even though China is now completely got us, they've got us where the gonads here because they learned everything we can teach them about the movie business, and now they're gonna, and now um, they're gonna start kicking us out. And um, there, it is. It's already happening. It's already taking place. Uh, Jerome, any positives in the entertainment world? Or is it mostly just that we've marginalized them? Is there anything going on that you think is a good development when it comes to yeah, uh, well, the, you know, the culture? You, you just, yeah. there, there, there are tons of studios popping up. There certainly are, you know filmmakers, writers, directors who are becoming more mainstream, but they're just doing good stuff. You know, the the, the sort of Yellowstone uh, phenomenon comes to mind. Um, 
but but beyond that, I, I think everything that David said about uh, you know China getting kicked out of of or Hollywood getting kicked out of China is absolutely right. But I think the squeeze comes in, and I, I, I don't. I think ultimately it is good. Is you know yesterday, I asked David to go to every studio that has cut uh, Russia off. And ask them, you know, well, have have they did, started discussions about the, their business relationship with China? I mean, this is a country that has hundreds of concentration camps. We just talk about the one in Xinjiang because they reportedly have two million people in it. And I asked him to ask the studios, to ask the Paramounts and the Warner Brothers and the Universals, the NBCs, is it going to take China actually invading Taiwan for them? You know. It presents a question for Hollywood that I think will be the end of their stronghold over the culture. They have been so exposed as you are kowtowing to a a Nazi regime in 2022. There is really no other way to put China. And if you're in business with them, the same goes for the for the for these professional sports establishment as well. But 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 no one is so flagrantly and nakedly smug uh than you know than chelsea handler or jennifer lawrence uh from the award stage and we've exposed them and i and david's right i just want to continue to put the squeeze on them um and that is what i'm proud of and and i think that's that's a good thing like we've done that that narrative that the conversation the reporting doesn't happen if breitbart doesn't exist David Ng and Jerome Hudson who cover entertainment for us at Breitbart News. Wonderful job, gentlemen. We'll be right back. Next, all-star guest from Breitbart News, Francis Martel, our world editor, perhaps the fan favorite of all the Breitbart guests that I have on the show uh, on a week-to-week basis. Emma Jo Morris, also our politics editor, is here as well, a new addition to the Breitbart.com newsroom, famous for breaking so many of the laptop-from-hell scoops in the run-up to the 2020 election to people who I learn from on a daily basis, and you'll learn from them right now. Francis, did you ever get a chance to meet Andrew? Yeah, um, I interviewed him for Mediate when I was an intern (laughs) at age like 22 or something like that. Wow. So uh, first of all, tell me what that experience was like. And you have to send me that link. I've got to read that. And I can't believe I haven't. Maybe I have a long time ago. And uh, what kind of drew you initially to Breitbart and working for Andrew's namesake company? So um, when I met him and interviewed him, I had no idea I would end up here, Um, but I was um, just sort of on Twitter, like a really politically minded kind of young person, and I read an interview or a profile of him at Salon, I think. This must have been 2010, 2011, Um, and I just posted something on Twitter, like I thought this was interesting, and he like reached out to me directly and was like, I want to know what you think about this, and I was like, I'm a random intern, like why do you care and um that was kind of what impacted me is that he could care could not care less about you know what the elites what the powers that be had to say about him but you know random people like normal 
grassroots people. Uh, those are the opinions that matter to him. So I reached out and, you know, we ended up doing an interview in New York and I just got to follow him around a little bit in Manhattan. He did a radio uh, appearance with like Hannity in the middle of the street. <laughs> he, he huddled in a street corner. <laughs> Which is a just, show with like, with, with like 10 million listeners to it. And he's like, yeah, this is what it's walking down the Yeah, yeah. He was like, hold on a second. I got to make a call. And then he just like huddled into the corner of a skyscraper and started yelling about, you know, the destruction of like the media establishment <laughs> and then he was like oh yeah that was sean hannity and i was like whoa you know because i was really young and like super starstruck but he was the, the, very humble Francis, and like constantly yeah, working can, can, can i just cut into to because this is exactly a perfect example of something i've been talking about all week and i had this very similar conversation about um, uh, with this, with Charlie Hurt yesterday on the show, which you guys can get on the new Breitbart News Daily podcast, uh, which we spoke exactly about this phenomenon that Andrew genuinely treated normal people, people who didn't have a name brand, uh, people who didn't have necessarily any major clout. Uh, he would take everyone seriously. And he, it was a sort of humility that was unexpected. It's disarming on a personal level, but I think strategically, it also was really great for his company and for uh, the, the country in general, just to see someone like that who was powerful and who could talk to anyone, he could talk to Sean Hannity, but he takes you as seriously as he takes Sean. No disrespect to Sean because Andrew revered Sean, but it's the it is amazing that that is the type of guy he was. Absolutely. And and one thing I, I feel like was very important to me was, you know, I grew up pretty working class, poor Hispanic. And like I didn't really when I got to college and I met like mainstream like the children of people in the rnc and realized that i didn't fit in like i didn't have the little pearl earrings i didn't wear my hair in a bun i didn't know you know mitt romney's sister's cousin's brother-in-law like i felt very excluded and um meeting andrew and like following his legacy when i was younger made me feel like no i have a place here and i have to fight for it because wow. he was fighting for my place here that's so 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 great, Emma. What when did you come into? When did you the, first discover Breitbart? I assume you didn't get a chance to meet Andrew, but were you familiar with his work? Were you, did you follow him when you uh, weren't here? Yeah, definitely. Of course, it's funny that Francis says that because I totally connect with that experience. Um, I first started to discover Andrew's work in like 2013, 2014, um, and I was I was a gay conservative. I was always conservative in university and even in high school. And I never felt like I quite fit in. I mean, now it's so ubiquitous. Every third person in, you know, at CPAC is going to be a gay conservative. But in 2013, 2014, even 2015, that was not common or at least not commonly talked about. It was kind of one or the other. And the left had kind of taken ownership of gay issues and the gay voice. And um, it was it was awkward. Like I remember going to CPAC in like 2015, and it, you couldn't really talk about it. You really couldn't talk about it. I remember wow. kind of bringing it up once, and it was met uh, very like it was a frosty reception. And I was like, okay, uh, I, I guess I can't really talk about this here. And I I decided that my values as a conservative were going to be more important than anything about my sexuality, which I didn't consider really part of my identity in any serious way. But it was Andrew and Breitbart and Breitbart.com that really made a place for somebody like me, I felt, in this movement and, and sent the message that actually, no, uh, all of conservatism isn't a monolith 
And there is a place and it's worth it for. Another thing that I really connected with Andrew on in Righteous Indignation and also just in the work on the site was when I was in university, I went to school in Canada and it was completely dominated by the left. And I, I mean, obviously the teachers were left wing, but that's whatever. But it was a cultural thing. Um, like you, you really, this is like another circumstance of what I was talking about. Like you could not talk about anything that strayed even a little bit from left-wing orthodoxy. There were militant leftists as students that basically dominated student life and dominated school culture. And, you know, I was watching a, a conservative movement and a Republican party that was interested in policy, which is fine and obviously important, but there was nobody speaking to um, an institutional and cultural takeover that the left was having. And Andrew was the sole voice that yeah, was saying, true. no, this isn't, this is about more than tax cuts. This is about, <laughs> this is about free speech. This is about culture. This is about a society and a way that like our culture interacts with people. And it's completely dominated by the left and politics can never change. If we don't deal with that. So I had two major themes in my life that I felt were totally going unresponded to by mainstream conservatives and by the Republican Party. Um, I did want to be a part of that. I just didn't know how until I realized what Andrew was talking about. And I was like, okay, no, there, this isn't crazy. I'm not crazy. The things that I'm noticing are real. And the things that I'm feeling are real. And there is somebody who's articulating them in a strong way, in a powerful way, and who's fighting for what I believed were the central issues in my life. Emma, it's interesting because Andrew fought very hard for gays to have a place in the conservative movement. And this is something where he was so far ahead of the curve uh, on it. And it's one where he 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 did lose friends over it. I know uh, Rick Grinnell gives him a ton of credit in the uh, tribute that you can see in the front page of Breitbart.com right now uh, in Rick Grinnell's um, uh, commentary on it about how really the the openness, the willingness to embrace gays into the movement is traces right to Andrew and it's something that he'll be in the history books uh, for that uh, but Francis I want to throw something to you that I think connects with the news a little bit and uh, something that Emma noted uh, about how the conservative movement I think was much more uh, exclusionary uh, than e e e in a time that was pre-Andrew and it takes a lot of effort to be exclusionary and it, it, we need to I think have a big tent or as I joke about Trump a huge, a huge tent uh, and I think Andrew did represent that better than anyone um, until that point and maybe ever. And something that strikes me is how he was ultimately pro-freedom. And really what I think defines your work at Breitbart more than anything is just opposition to communism, opposition to totalitarianism. That seems to be sort of the underpinning just about everything you, you write for us at Breitbart and a lot of the content of our world coverage is, is uh, that's sort of the leading light is we don't like the communists and it starts there. And we always track what the communists are up to, be it in China. Uh, you know, you look what's going on with Putin in Ukraine right now. And, you know, when you see people like Nicolas Maduro coming out of the uh, woodwork to have Putin's back. It, it's striking. It means something. And it's the do I have this right? And if so, I'm sure you see a connection between the Breitbartification of the conservative movement and, and media here and the the threat that communism and totalitarianism poses on a global level. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, I think one of the most shocking things to me about Andrew was he was the first not Cuban white person that I met who 
forgot that communism was evil and like was very aggressively anti-communist. You know, I where I grew up, everybody was Cuban. We all agreed with Andrew without even knowing who he was. Um, but I had never met someone sort of born and raised here with no direct experience with that kind of totalitarianism who understood a, America's role in fighting it, and B, just what it actually means. Like, I, I think if you explain to him that China has a social credit system today, he would be like, of course they do. That's exactly yeah, what I was exactly. fighting. That's um, that's very much at the core of, I think, everything he was doing, and that's definitely what resonated with me. And just the individuality and the humor. There was no humor before Andrew in the conservative movement. I, you know, listening to Emma talk about how excluded she felt in college, you you had two choices. You were either a hardcore leftist or you, you know, were like the Mitt Romney buttoned up conservative. And sure. if you weren't either of those things, you were not part of the party. And to be honest, that's kind of part of totalitarianism too, right? It's ripping people from the choice to be an individual. And Andrew was yes. so aggressively pro-individual, pro-everyone just being whatever they want to be with no one like defining, you know, that they have to choose a side or, you know, dictate to someone else what their personality is uh, it and this is something that i definitely can say confidently i have maintained that legacy uh, at breitbart i usually don't cut in this way but i will say that for me when i wake up in the morning uh, i hate totalitarianism i love the individual i love the family i love this country like th those are the things that i'm thinking about more than i'm some sort of a, a cookie cutter conservative that you know might get approved of or disapproved of by the RNC or the National Review opinion page. Like, I'm not worried about that stuff. I'm worried, are we championing the individual? Are we championing the family? Are we championing this country? And if not, why not? And those are the, sort of the fundamental questions, and those come directly from Andrew. Uh, and I do think we've maintained that. Uh, Emma Jo Morris and Francis Martell are with me. Francis runs our international coverage. Emma Jo is our politics editor. Uh, Emma Jo, uh, the, I only have time for one more, but I want to throw this to you because there's a moment in Biden's speech in the State of the Union that I think was very, really resonated with me in a negative way, and it didn't get a ton of attention, which is that he said, we can't change how divided we've been. Uh, he is a bystander in his own country. I find this to be very frightening, and I find this to be uh, his acting like he is no culpability. He is no causality in the disunity that we have right now. Uh, this is something that we always talk about how the, the buck should stop here when it comes to the president of the United States. But this was a new level of buck passing that I just could not wrap my mind around. Uh, this is, I think, so emblematic of the Biden administration thus far. Do you have a thought on it? Yeah, I mean, the speech, like the more, you know, I've had 24 hours to digest it and I have a different impression of it or I, or maybe a deeper impression of it than I did, obviously, while I was watching or even the morning after. And the thing that I have been thinking about over and over is how superficial it was. Um, it made a lot of uh, obvious claims like that or like it made an obvious claim and then provided no uh, deeper thought about how to deal with the claim. So he made that statement also just standing on its own, no no way to elaborate on how he's going to deal with it, how he's going right. to take control of it, or how he's going to lead us out of it. But then he also uh, made a lot of, that was and that was a big whiplash, right? That was a big pivot from what he campaigned on, and how he is going to provide cohesion that this country hasn't seen. 
And now yes. it's kind of just matter of fact, uh, no, this is just occurring and uh, and that's all. Uh, Emma Joe, I, I got to cut in because I'm going to get, I'm getting the old timey hook here, but I do want to say that there was his signature promise, maybe of them all, was to unify the country. And not only is he not unifying us, he's now coming out and saying flat out, he cannot do it. And there is nothing he can do about it, even as the president, which is truly pathetic. And it is not a good moment for the United States. Uh, ladies, thanks so much for doing this. I would love to do it again, but I got to run to a break. We'll be right back. A particularly fun part of my life is that some of my heroes are also my colleagues, and occasionally some of my heroes actually work for me, and uh, Peter Schweitzer is one such person. His book, Red Handed, is again at number one on the New York Times bestseller list as we record this. He's the president of the Government Accountability Institute, but people might not recall that he was one of the first employees at Breitbart News, top uh, first 10 people for sure. He got on the pirate ship very early on and uh, hasn't left, though I think uh, his day job is writing these books. He still can, is a contributor for uh, to us and uh, helps me on a number of topics, getting into deep dive research and just a the quintessential investigative reporter of our time and a longtime friend and colleague at Breitbart. Let's hear from Peter. I'm actually stunned by this. This is the first time throughout all this that I'm actually surprised that how did the New York Times let your book back to number one after it had slipped to number two and now it's back at number one. Uh, that is truly mind-blowing. I think it's a testament to your work. It's a testament to Breitbart, of course, um, which is sort of your home base online. But it is, that is amazing. Congrats, of course. But I, I'm sort of stunned that the Times let this happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, they have a secret sauce uh, for their bestseller list that nobody really knows except the insiders. So I, I don't know exactly what happened. I'm, I'm ob obviously very thankful and grateful for it. And, of course, Breitbart, um, you know, plays such a central role in this um, because you alert leaders to the details. You don't run just puff pieces on, you know, oh, Peter Schweitzer has a new book out. You actually run very meaty stories. And the reporters yes. of Breitbart – don't just regurgitate. They actually build. It's like they're sort of standing on my shoulders and take the story to a further level. And that's, I think, part of the reason, a big part of the reason why the book has been so successful, because people are, are really interested in this material. And they see it's not opinion. It's based on fact and actual evidence. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that's great, which I hopefully will sell some more books, is that Peter and I sat down for a couple hours at his headquarters and uh, we have not released the full version of it because our video team has been tied up 24 seven on the epic Andrew Breitbart tribute. Um, which Peter's commentary inspired the song uh, that we played, Walk Towards the Fire, that we debuted on the show on Tuesday, which is unbelievable. Um, so is a... Great song, great song. I didn't, I didn't know so I good. that. This is, well, I'm, I'm going to become a songwriter. It's the I, I at least maybe I'm maybe I'm not framing it exactly right, but <laughs> your line, who is this guy? Uh, became the first lyric in the song, and I, I don't actually know. It might be a chicken or egg thing, I might, but it's just so because you can't be the only person who thought about Andrew that way. Who is this guy? But Peter's commentary is excellent, and it just precedes the song that is pulls lyrics directly from Peter's thoughts on Andrew. Uh, but we're gonna have a two-hour video uh, where we get into the details, and it's not just about hey, here's something to read during spring break like it's the uh, when, when you go to Rehoboth Beach you know it's this is about uh, trying to unpack how deeply intertwined we are with China and how frightening it is um, but it is I think a huge part of Andrew's legacy and people forget that Peter was one of the first people on the ship one of the first 10 employees 
who, who Andrew hired. And, you know, we probably had 150, 200 over the course of the um, uh, 13, 14 years since Andrew relaunched Breitbart. And it's kind of cool, Peter. And it's something that we're very proud of that you've been a part of the family for so long. Oh, yeah, no. And I tell you, I mean, Andrew, you know, they, they basically, when you put the video together, they said, look, we've got so many people who want to talk about the role Andrew played in their life. So, you know, you've got basically 60 seconds. There's so many things that I wanted to say because I learned so many things from Andrew. I mean, so when I met Andrew, I mean, I had written uh, written some books and they've been bestsellers. And I was a, the, the William J. Casey fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And and here's Andrew. Um, and, you know, I learned so much from him in those early years um, because I obviously didn't know him that long when he tragically passed away. But I just remember, I mean, having conversations with him about how to actually read a news story. Now, I'm a guy that has read, you know, hundreds of thousands of news stories over the last 40 years. But actually describing how, you know, the, the, the reporter is going to frame it a certain way, looking for the buried lead, looking for the, the sort of the meta information that really matters in this story. Um, he got me to think about reading news stories and watching news stories in a completely, totally different way. And in Andrew's way, he didn't sit down and, and, and kind of, you know, lecture you about it. You were having a, co- a casual conversation about something else, and he would offer these insights. So he had a profound impact on me, the way that I consume information, and that has helped me in my writing, the work I do with Breitbart, the work I do with books. Um, and there's so many things like that. You probably have the same thing, Alex. You look back. Yeah, of course. And if you look at the genesis of it, you realize that Andrew had something to do with something that you're doing now. Uh, and just to follow up on my point about how what a blockbuster red handed is, is that the, the New York Times, their bestseller list is editorial. And um, I know that when my book came out, Breaking the News, that the first week it had sold maybe the third or fourth most copies of any yep. nonfiction book that week and it was 13th on the bestseller list and the following week it was you know fifth or sixth most sales and then it was not on the list at all so it's the yep. so so when you're seeing peter number one four out of five i mean that is a that is the next level stuff because they're trying to not grant attention to this because it is rage raising tremendously important issues um, and issues that, for example, Big Joey the Biden, our, uh, our titular president of the United States, uh, doesn't want to address. China has gotten a total pass from him and it continued yeah. to the State of the Union, Peter, that where he mentioned Putin 12 times, China a mere three times. Uh, China is the gravest threat of our time. This has been the focus of your research, so much of our reporting at Breitbart. And if you were to listen to Joe Biden, you would think it was uh, a, a fraction of the impact on American life, potentially, as, you know, Ukraine and Russia and the Donbass region. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, just just put in the context of what Russia is doing in Ukraine, Russia, if China were on board with um, the restriction on commerce with Russia, uh, energy, everything else, uh, Russia would be broke. They wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, so this really is something that uh, uh, resonates um, that that I think is importantly tied to what Beijing is doing. Uh, and yet Joe Biden considers China kind of as an afterthought. Um, you know, it's it, it, reporting today that just uh, came out that I saw that there were consultations between Putin and Xi and that uh, 
uh, Putin um, assured Xi that he would not invade Ukraine during the uh, Olympics in Beijing. Um, that clearly is an indication that China uh, knew that it was coming. And then, of course, you've got the reporting from The New York Times that the Biden administration before the war shared critical intelligence with Beijing on Russian troop movements in the hopes that Beijing was going to tell Russia not uh, to go into Ukraine. And instead, China shared that intelligence with the Russians, which, of course, gives them all kinds of insights into how our intelligence system works, what we know about them, et cetera. So all of this stuff completely ignored by the Biden administration. Uh, you see more, uh, you know, in other areas, uh, they've cut back on the program started during the Trump administration, uh, where we were going to be monitoring the transfer of technology from researchers who were under U.S. federal government contracts. That program has been tossed away. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And you can't see anything that Joe Biden has done of substance uh, that holds China into account for anything. Peter Schweitzer, again, is my guest, senior contributor to Breitbart News, among his many uh, titles. So Biden uh, also has uh, not only is he ignoring China, he's putting this emphasis on Putin and Russia, which still benefits China. I think I think China could somehow backdoor even more of a victory in this crisis that we're witnessing um, uh, right now between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, there's a great, uh, great article by John Carney uh, on the Breitbart page right now where he gives an analysis that China's going to be the winner uh, in, in a lot of respects. Just look at what um, is happening vis-a-vis Russia and China's commercial ties. They're enhancing. They're growing. Uh, China announced before the war that they're going to be buying massive amounts of coal from Russia. Uh, energy. The, China needs to import almost all of its energy supply. That's increasingly coming from Russia. So you're going to have a situation where China, rather than being part of the international community and isolating Russia uh, because of their naked aggression in Ukraine, instead, China is going to use it to their strategic advantage. Um, And look, they're looking for clues as to how we are responding to Ukraine uh, when they look at what they want to do with Taiwan, which is to bring Taiwan back under their control. Incredible stuff from Peter Schweitzer, as always. Congrats, my friend, and uh, thanks for checking in with me yet again. Red Handed is the book. It's a must-read. Many thanks to junior producer Zach, filling in for Haley and Greg Eben. Our senior producer, Robert Marlowe, helps me pick topics. And thanks to all of you who have picked up Breaking the News, perhaps an audiobook. Great thing to listen to. I do recommend it. And told 10,000 friends and family members about the new show, We Can't Grow Without Your Help. I definitely recommend you go to the front page of Breitbart right now and click on the Andrew Breitbart tribute where you hear from the likes of Clarence Thomas and others about what Andrew Breitbart meant to them personally and or what he meant to the broader news and cultural and conservative media landscape. All that at Breitbart.com right now. Thanks for listening.